Worth repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation, the City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, and Niche at Pearl. Welcome to the Worth Repeating Podcast. I'm Tori Poole. The stories in this episode were recorded live from the Irma and Emilio Nicolás Media Center at Texas Public Radio in downtown San Antonio. The theme was Elevated, stories about high stakes and higher experiences. Have you ever been too high? The first storyteller is Beverly Meyer. Beverly shares a story about the bargaining power of a saddle pad. everybody. Okay, let's see how this goes. Last time I did this, it dropped. Okay, how's that? Yay. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming out. (laughs) Well, when I was in my 20s, multiple decades ago, I was in college in North Carolina, and I was a brave young woman, privileged white person at the college as I was, and a lot of confidence on summer vacation. Let's do something brave and outrageous because I can do anything. A lot of 20-year-olds have this problem. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I'd ridden horses all my life, and I loved mountains and forests. And I heard about this trail ride for four days in the Canadian Rockies. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) So I signed up. And before I went, I knew that I was gonna get saddle sore muscles for sure, because I hadn't ridden in a while. But I also knew that my skinny butt and my skinny knees we're gonna complain very quickly from being in that saddle. So I had made a thick foam pad cut to fit over the top of that big Western saddle that I knew was waiting for me, and it would give me some padding that I don't have. (laughs) So my pad and me launched off in a series of planes, trains, buses, and automobiles. I think there was even a boat in there somewhere and arrived at this place in the Canadian Rockies. And there were 15 teenage boys from Canada, adult boys, not like little kids, and and, uh, their chaperone dentist man, who must have drawn the short stick, because he's supposed to watch out for these 15 boys in the woods. And the four horsemen who took care of the horses and the animals and us, and me, the only girl, the college co-ed, long brown hair and a saddle pad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let the teasing ensue. Uh, And so there's 15 men, 20 men and the 20 horses, and then there's four pack horses with these big wooden panniers, these big wooden boxes on their sides that have 
all of our stuff in there, you know, food and luggage and medical supplies and whatever. So these four big pack horses and then a string of spare horses back there in case we lose one <laughs> or more. And, um, <clears throat> and off we go. So we're in this long thing. Sometimes we can ride together or loose. And I'm full of confidence. I got this handled. And the boys have the, they're so charming. And they're just such flirts. And they circle around me like bees around the flower as we go. And, you know, because I'm the obvious thing to entertain them. And, um, and they tease me about the pad. And then that night, it, the, the teasing was, can I, may I, can I have your pad? <laughs> just for an hour, please. And, and it got to the point where they wanted to trade sexual favors for the pad. <laughs> and I quickly learned, never let that pad out of your my sight. So it slept in the sleeping bag with me and went to the woods when I had to go to the girl section of the woods, which was anywhere where the other 20 men were not. Anyway, my confidence is going downhill as I realize this is not a, a, a dude ranch trail ride. This is some serious shit here. All right, we're crossing rivers and streams. At one point, we're going through a mud bog up to the horse's chest. You fall off, you're going to just sink down there. They'll never find you. And, you know, I'm getting a little concerned, and my confidence is definitely waning. By the third day, uh, oh, and my pants froze to the side of the tent one night. <laughs> which was really great for my self-esteem, and the boys just loved that. Um, so on the third day, we had to pass through this narrow part of the trail in a mountain pass. It was about six feet wide. Well, so it's definitely single file. and. There's like a, a, it's not a cliff down there, but it is, it's definitely a hill. And then there's the uphill, and I'm on the horse in the middle, and we're all single file, 20 horses, plus the four pack horses, plus a string of, of spares back there. And horses with their pecking order are supposed to be where they're supposed to be. And at one point I hear this huge commotion. And I'm thinking, what the heck is that? And I turn around, and one of the pack horses with this giant pair of wooden panniers on his side has decided he wants in place, in, in my place, in the line. There's definitely not room for two of us on this section of trail. And I'm hitting him with my hat and trying to kick him with my boot and like, get out of here, you stupid animal. We're going to die. <laughs> so clearly somebody was going over the edge and it wasn't going to be me. So, you know, if my horse could go over or the pack horse could go over, but I'm not going over. So I look up and there's a root hanging on the side of my upside of the cliff. So I hang on to the root, and I tell this stupid pack horse, I said, all right, do your worst, whatever you're going to do, because I've got this root. And I turn and look at him, and over the edge he went. 
down the hill. If he'd had had, had fingernails, it'd have been like And at some point, you know, he's rolling over and the pack, the boxes are cracking and stuff is coming out. And, you know, he turned out okay. He didn't die. <laughs> I'm sure he had sore ribs. But the men went back later and got him and our stuff. And, you know, it all worked out. And I eventually let go of the route. <laughs> but at this point, my confidence was shattered. I had a panic attack. And, you know, th there's no cheering up that the boys could do at this point. I'm just a, a mess. And it's like, well, okay, I haven't died. But so I learned two things from this trip. Number one, never leave my house. <laughs> well, well, no. <laughs> Y'all are funny. Never leave my house without my emotional support pad, whatever that looks like. And number two, even though you think you're really confident if you've got all bases covered, when you need to have a good old panic attack to get through whatever you got to get through, just so you can hit the trail, it's OK. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's the first time a man fought for a pad. Know someone with a great story? Tell them about Worth Repeating. Worth Repeating is now accepting submissions for February's live event on the topic Reset. From second chances to starting all over, these stories are all about restoration. Submit today by visiting tpr.org backslash WR. This program was made possible with support from the 8020 Foundation, striving to transform San Antonio by issuing grants to public charities that attract, grow, and retain San Antonio's future workforce. For this and more information, visit 8020foundation.com. Our next storyteller is Oliver Blair. Oliver shares a story about a time he tried not to judge an edible by its milligrams. <laughs> I've been high many times in my life, many times. I've smoked weed, eaten many edibles in different parts of the world. Most, most recently, I was actually in Thailand when I actually got very high. But I can never in a million years ever believe that the craziest high I ever would have would be here in San Antonio, Texas. Now, my best friend, Drew, told me about this shop that sold legal weed products, intrigued me, so one day we ended up going, and I picked out something, I ended up buying a product called Cluster Fucks. <laughs> I, I, I paid $40 for it, and I didn't take it that day, so I waited a few days. After a long, boring day of jury duty, I decided, after getting home at around 5 p.m., I said, I'm gonna get fucked up tonight. <laughs> so, I run and I open up the bag of cluster fucks. I take one out. I first look at it, it's like a piece of gum that has like some colorful dots on it. 
And so I chewed it, and it has like a fruity flavor to it. And I swallowed it, and I laid down and relaxed for about 30 minutes or so. And then next thing you know, I was on Earth, and then I was in space, um, looking down at the planet, saying, wow, the Earth looks amazing. Um, it was, I was so high. It was ridiculous how high I was. So I said, wow, OK. So now I'm going to chill out for a couple hours and let it calm down, because it has to calm down. So a couple hours goes by, 7 PM hits. I'm getting hungry. I decided I'm going to get up and eat something. My legs said, I don't think so. No. <laughs> Jelly, my legs were jelly. They weren't having it. So I had to grab onto stuff like an old gentleman trying to get to places because if I tried to walk without grabbing onto something, I would fall on my ass. So I get to the kitchen and I realize I'm so high, I'm not putting a knife in my hand, I'm not going to the ER today. So I make a basic meal, eat, and chill out for a few more hours thinking it will calm down. It didn't. It said, I won't quit you. And it didn't quit me. So I said, OK, well, I'm going to go to bed now. It's about 10 o'clock. I'm going to sleep this off. So I make my way to bed. I fall asleep. And then I end up waking up. And I look at the clock. And it says 11 something. And immediately, I think, I screwed up. It's 11 AM. I've overslept. I can't believe I slept 12 plus hours. This is ridiculous. I'm freaking out because I was trying to go to work. But I, and I wanted to get over the high to get to work because I had no more vacation time. And I need, if I called in, I didn't get paid. I'm like, I'm going to work. I'm getting paid. So I, I look at the clock thinking it's 11, 11 a.m. So I get out of the bed. Legs still won't work. So I'm still walking like an old person to my blackout curtain covered window. I look out, and it's dark out. And I'm like, thank you. It's not 11 AM. It's 11 PM. I'm tripping. I get back in bed, go back to sleep. I wake up again. I look at the clock. It's 12 something. I've really messed up. I know I slept to 12 PM. There's no way it's 12 AM. It's 12 PM. I, I'm, I'm screwed up I'm so badly. I'm four hours late. At least, I'm screwed. So I'm sitting there freaking out. I walk as best I can to my front door. And I open the door. And I look out. And it's dark out. And I'm like, thank you. I'm so happy. I'm still tripping. I need, I need, to, go, I need to go to sleep. I need to relax, go to bed, and then wake up. My alarm goes off at 5 AM. So I try to go back to sleep. And my body says, no, not today. No, you're not going back. To, no, no more sleep for you. So I eventually give up and open my eyes. And I see something I thought I would never, ever see in my life. I see about a foot or so from my face, a two-inch tall, animated Eric Cartman <laughs> staring at me. Now, he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. And then eventually, he starts talking to me. And he says, whatever, whatever, I do what I want. Whatever, whatever. And he's doing the. Screw you guys, I'm going home dance while he's saying that over and over and over again to me. So I went from freaked out to laughing my ass off. So after that, I calmed down, I relaxed a lot, and I actually fell asleep. So I ended up waking up at 5 a.m. when my alarm went off, and all I can think was, can I walk? 
because my legs were not operating well the night before. So I got up and I could walk and I said, I'm good. So I did my normal routine and I walk out to my car and I love my car to death. I love my car. I call it Black Beauty. It's a white Hyundai Sonata. Um, but the crazy part about my car is if you look at my car incorrectly, it turns black. And then you can only see as a black car from that day forward. It's crazy. So uh, I get in my car, and I'm driving down 410, and I'm about to pass San Pedro, the San Pedro exit. So I pass it, and then I close my eyes for a split second, and then I went back in time. Because next thing I know, I'm before the exit, the San Pedro exit, and I'm about to pass it for the second time. I'm like, uh-oh, what's going on here? Um, I'm freaking out a bit, but I'm like, I need to concentrate on driving because I need to get to work. So I'm driving, I go further up the road, and I see another area I normally pass. I pass it, and it's like a blink, and I'm back to before I pass it, and I'm passing it a second time, so I'm going back and forth in time. It's crazy. So I eventually get to work. I get in the parking lot. I park my car, and I'm shocked that I made it okay. And then I get out of the car, and I walk around and check out my baby to make sure she's good. She was still looking as sexy as ever. <laughs> and I start walking into my job and it, it, to the front door. And as I'm walking, I'm thinking, am I so high that people will notice? Because they notice I am so screwed. And you know, I have haters at work, too. They will get me, I'm telling you. So I'm thinking, now this is going to happen. So, but I get to work inside the building. Nobody notice, notices anything. And I'm sitting there and do my normal work day. Everything's great. Everything's fine. And so I end up clocking out of work. And I'm, as I'm walking back to my car, I'm thinking the whole time, that little clusterfuck, that one thing kept me high a whole 24 hours. I couldn't believe it. It's a, that was the craziest yet the most interesting 24-hour period I've ever had in my life. And I can tell you this for a fact, I am definitely gonna take that shit again and get <laughs> fucked up. Sounds like Oliver will remember to schedule vacation next time. Worth Repeating returns December 12th and the theme is taught. From the ins and outs of the classroom to the lessons we needed to learn, these stories are all about knowledge. Be sure to educate yourself and grab tickets today by visiting tpr.org wr. This program was made possible by the City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, striving to enrich the quality of life of San Antonio residents and visitors by creating art programming and helping people experience art. For this and more information, visit getcreativesanantonio.com. Our next storyteller is Cynthia Harrington. Cynthia shares a story about an afternoon that wasn't the smoothest sailing. My home is San Antonio, but much of my life I've lived near water. So in Chicago, that was Lake Michigan. Uh, Lake Michigan is one of the Great Lakes. It's more like a sea. And Lake Michigan can be blue and docile, or it can be fierce and uh, unpredictable and dangerous. So one of the blue docile days, I take my friends Kathy and Claire out sailing. 
The harbor where we have our boats is right off uh, Michigan Avenue and the skyscrapers, and it's cozy. It's formed by the shore and then a long breakwater that is concrete blocks on the other side. Uh, this harbor is different in the winter than in the summer. In the winter, it is one solid piece of, of glass, a, a hard surface. In the spring, when the ice melts, the city brings out and anchors mooring cans, which is what the boats will, will come on and moor on on the summer. And mooring cans are like round, flattened balloons that, that float on the top of the water. So before the boats come, it's like a huge tic-tac-toe game. 20 rows down and, and, uh, and, and then room for 10 boats in each row. So Kathy and Claire are novices, but they help me get the dinghy, and we row out to our boat. Uh, I, we race our boats, but I also help with lessons. And learning to sail is like learning to dance with the wind. Our boats have no motors. It's a wooden shell. It's a tiller, a long wooden handle that uh, handles a rudder that goes into the water, which turns, and two pieces of canvas. That's it. You're probably figuring out sailing back up and hitting this can is no small feat. So we round the we rig the boat, round the breakwater, and it is a beautiful day. The sky and the and the water are the same color. This is a well-deserved respite for all of us. Um, we kick back, talk, drink, enjoy the sun. But I'm keeping my eye on the northern horizon across the far north end of the lake is a wall of angry gray clouds. It's not part of our world, they're moving straight east. Still, I turn us around and head us back to shore. As we get to shore, as we head to shore, the waves grow gray. We're now slapping against the waves. Um, we have time, but we have no time to waste. We round the harbor, uh, Claire lays, lies on the front of the bow, she reaches over, she grabs the can, we get the mooring line on, we're safe, we're secure. But the wind at this point is fighting everything that we do, we're taking down the sails, restashing the boat. We load our cooler in the dinghy and suddenly there's a bump against our boat. We look into the, into the eyes of a very young skipper in total fear in one of our other club boats. After she hits us, she pinballs down the, the row, hitting uh, one boats, boats on both sides. They head up toward their can. Her very young first mate is lying on the bow on the front. They're going way too fast. She leans over. She grabs the marker. She's almost pulled off into the roiling water. She lets go just in time and flattens herself in fear on the front. They continue pinballing off toward the shore. I tell my friends, my big sister energy kicks in. I tell my friends, if she hits us again, I'll have to jump on the boat and help them. We, load our, uh, we continue loading everything in the dinghy. We're about to take off, and bump, there she is. So I jump on into her bow and slide into the cockpit. I take over the tiller. We go down a, a, a row of boats, all rocking violently. Rain dots my glasses. I yell, are you OK? She nods yes. So I inspect the boat. Mainsail looks fine. Jib, little sail in the front. It's not strung correctly. With the lines at the, at the knots at the end, we will never be able to re release them in the storm. So I sail us back around the breakwater, out into the open water, where we can untie and retie the, the, the ropes. We head back in. The storm is full on now. Every raindrop is a bucket full. Her friend is cowering with her head on her knees underneath the bow. We round the corner, we've got a clear channel to our 
uh, between the boats and the breakwater to our mooring can. Um, my first mate is now operating quite, quite successfully on the front of the boat. We head down the channel. We will make it. Suddenly, the tiller goes loose in my hand. We've lost the wind. The wind has shifted. And without that, we're literally dead in the water. We're drifting toward the breakwater. Those hungry concrete teeth are just looking to chomp on our wooden boat. My mind races for a solution. We're going slowly enough, we'll be able to jump off onto the concrete, but the uh, wind that this, that this storm has yet to force on us will slam that boat over and over into the concrete until it's done. So the only thing to do is throw the tiller. For some miracle, the rudder below catches and it swings the boat completely around. The, the sails catch wind and we take off down the row. We're heading straight toward the can now, straight into the wind, so we slow enough. The first mate grabs the, um, the marker, fastens the mooring can. We've made it. The storm now is, is lessening. The sun is starting to come out. I signal for my friends to come pick me up in the dinghy. Um, so, and I, I, but I, I'm still feeling the lift of that tiller in my hand when, when the sail's caught. I reach beyond in this, in this at this time, and um, I got lucky. But I wonder if I'm asked to do this again, if my luck will be there or if it will have run out. Something tells me it was skill that day on the water, not luck. Worth Repeating is now a book. Trinity University Press and TPR are proud to present Worth Repeating San Antonio stories featuring 40 true narratives. Pick one up at the next live event, December 12th. Your support funds programs like these. This program was made possible by Niche at Pearl. More than clothing, Niche at Pearl features jewelry, accessories, and crafting events. For this and more information, visit nicheatpearl.com. Our next storyteller is Evan Tweedy. Evan shares a story about a first-time high that left him feeling a little bit trapped. Hello. So growing up in uh, Boise, Idaho, those where I did uh, most of my elementary school, I learned that it primarily consists of uh, two things, potatoes and crystal methamphetamine. <laughs> and that's a problem that still persists to this day. Um, but, you know, the reason I really knew that, like, was because uh, Nickelodeon and uh, Cartoon Network would run all of these really horrifying PSAs that you can still find if you look up, uh, it's either the Idaho Meth Project or the Montana Meth Project. They would share the same PSAs. And it was like the most traumatic shit you could show a child ever. And it was like, like one that's always stuck out to me was because they showed it a lot. It was this kid who was going to buy meth for the first time. And then he just gets his head bashed in with a brick by like some random vagrants. Um, yeah. So, and that was pretty much on repeat for like the five years that I lived there. Um, and, and and like, and that, so there was that, like, I was always, like, afraid of drugs because of that. And there was also that mixed with, like, the, there was a lot of the rhetoric of, like, marijuana as a gateway drug that just got, like, reinforced over and over, like, pretty much every year. 
Uh, I remember actually when I came to high school, there was this guy that it was this coach that came in for our health class to teach us a little bit more about like the the anti-drug stuff that they were pushing. And he told this anecdote about how he knew this one, like uh, he was going to be a quarterback and he had a full ride to Texas State or UT or something like that. But then he smoked his first joint and he went into a coma. <laughs> and yeah. And then his parents had to pull the plug on him. So, yeah. So, I mean, I knew he was like totally full of it then, but like, it was still like, obviously for a ninth grader, still kind of frightening, you know, it's just like, but like, you know, so I, eventually I did get over that though, because like by the time I was 19, my parents had pretty much told me that they don't really care if I, if I'm making my own choices and I know what I'm doing, then, then they don't really mind. So that was really the biggest fear. So once I got over that, I kind of, you know, I, my friends had started smoking, so I wanted to join, to join the party. So we, we, they all wanted to go to, uh, go to the beach for spring break. So we all went to the beach. We had the two cars and we had like three tents and there was like the one big tent and like a two person tent and then the one person tent. And I ended up getting the one person tent, which seemed okay. Like, cause it seemed like it'd be comfy and everything. But, um, but I didn't realize that I was really claustrophobic, but we'll get to that later. Um, but so yeah, like everything was going well. Like we were just um, hanging out on the beach for most of the day. Um, and then once it came around to nighttime, we all got into the big tent. There was like maybe six or seven of us all huddled in a circle. And we were passing around some uh, fireball, some whiskey, uh, just taking like that just out of the bottle. And then we were, and then someone loaded up the little, uh, the little pipe and with their little baggie of weed. And they started passing it around. And by the time it got to me, it was like pretty much already ash, um, but I didn't really know how any of it, no one really explained it to me except for like how to actually take the hit. So once I did what they showed me to do, I like, I just sucked in like super hard and pretty much just sucked in like the whole bowl of lit ash. Um, and that was when I learned the term uh, Scooby Snacks, which is what that's called. Uh, because my friend, when it happened, she just yelled Scooby Snacks. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, I, you know, it wasn't like super unpleasant. It was just kind of weird. But um, <laughs> yeah, but then like, you know, I was feeling good for a while. Like, you know, I, I, I was definitely, I knew what being drunk felt like, so that wasn't like uncommon. But it was, uh, it did start feeling like kind of strange because I was, I definitely felt that I was like crossfaded, like, which is when you're like drunk and high at the same time. So like, I, I definitely felt like a bit of the heart racing and I was like kind of disoriented. I remember like I was like kind of tripping over myself. I didn't like fully stumble, but I was kind of getting there. Um, but we we're still having a good time. We were just like, I think a couple of my friends went to go skinny dip out in the water. And then the two of us just, or a couple of us just stayed back and played some music. Like my friend brought her guitar and we started playing uh, the front bottoms and uh, like Johnny Hobo and the freight train and some other like folk punk stuff. And that was really fun, and we were having a, a pretty good time. Um, but then I started getting tired before everybody else. Um, and I you know, always feel bad about like ditching people like in the middle of a party or something like that. But I just knew I had to go to sleep, because I, I think like all of the weed in my stomach was starting to finally hit me. And so that was making me like way more tired than I was probably supposed to be. And so I crawl into the one-person tent. And like, I, I managed to fall asleep. Like it was pretty comfortable at first, but then I woke up at like two in the morning and I was just like almost having a panic attack 
like, um, firstly, I was, I was sleeping on my arm, so my arm was numb, um, just completely. And I was also like, I could feel my heart racing and like, I was super sweaty and my heart was just like totally pounding. It felt like I was like totally in a like different reality or something like that. And especially because it felt like one thing that I could hear was it felt like there were people marching all around the tent. So that just made me think I was getting like in a body bag being pulled away in a war or something like that. Or I was like in an alien bag, like alien sack being birthed or something, you know? So that was like, I just couldn't get those. I was just ruminating on those sorts of thoughts over and over and over again. And like, I was trying to unzip the zipper with my numb arm because it just didn't occur to me to use the, the, not the normal one. And, but once I think it might've been in a weird position too, but once I was able to kind of like maneuver myself, I like, I unzipped the tent and I just like tried to lay it out. Like I kind of just collapsed the tent entirely and just laid on top of it, just on the, on the beach. And you know, it was helpful to like stare out at the stars and actually like just breathe and be with myself. Cause it was like two in the morning and no one else was awake. And I don't think anyone, maybe someone heard me like, you know, uh, struggling. But other than that, it was, I was just there by myself, like, you know, like listening to the waves and, and watching the stars and, and that part was really relaxing, but I just, there was no way I was going to be able to like actually fall asleep. So I went, uh, you know, luckily, you know, we had the cars there. So my friend, uh, like she had brought her car, it was like a red sedan. And I went into the passenger seat and, you know, managed to fall asleep there until like seven or something. And then my friends came and they just like, you know, knocked on the door. They were like, what happened? I was like, I got, uh, I got taken to war <laughs> and there wasn't much I could do about it. Um, but yeah, and obviously they all laughed at me and I, you know, I still laughed. I laugh at it to this day, obviously. Um, but you know, all that to say, like, you know, uh, sometimes it feels like you need to isolate yourself in those moments, you know, especially when you're having like a weed induced panic attack or something like that. But it'll actually like probably help you a lot more than you think it will to just actually be with somebody that's like close to you. And also, uh, if you can product test your stuff, do that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. Product testing is always a good idea. We're glad Evan made it back from the weed war. That's it for the worth repeating podcast. Do us a favor and like, subscribe, or review us wherever you stream podcasts. Stay tuned for part two of the live event on the theme Elevated streaming November 28th. It's pretty lit. Support for Worth Repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation, the City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, and Niche at Pearl. Worth Repeating is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Tori Poole. Thanks for listening.